0: Hello, listeners. A quick word before today's show. Do you aspire to make podcasts of your own? Do you have a great idea for a podcast, but you don't know how to go about starting it? You should enter our Kristen Meinsner Podcast Coaching Session Contest. Kristen is the ultimate podcast guru. She's an influential podcast producer. She hosts the By the Book podcast, and she's the author of the upcoming book, So You Want to Start a Podcast, which is on sale August 6th. And yeah, she reads the audiobook too. One lucky winner is going to get to sit down with Kristen and have a one-on-one coaching session. Before you enter for a chance to win, be sure you've thought about the following questions like, why do you want to start a podcast? What is your show about? Who is your podcast for? How is your show going to be structured? To enter the contest and for a listing of the complete rules, go to the link in our show notes. Contest window is open until July 29th, so make sure to enter today. Now, on to the show. Hello, audiobook fans. Welcome to another episode of Harper Audio Presents. Today's episode is focused on one title, a new collection of essays called Nice Try from comedian, writer, and author Josh Gondelman. Josh Gondelman is an accomplished stand-up comedian. He's won Emmys, a Peabody, and many more awards for his work as a writer on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and he is currently a writer producer for Showtime's Jesus and Mero. But beyond the accolades, Josh Gondelman is an incredibly pleasant person to talk to, as you'll hear in our interview today. Josh is so inherently nice, and maybe because of this, he's had his share of last place finishes in his life. In Nice Try, Josh celebrates a life of very good intentions and very mixed results. Josh sat down and talked with me about what it's like to bomb on stage, his time as a teacher, we got into the nitty-gritty of 90s movie soundtracks, and so much more. He is also the first guest to dive into a new segment of ours, a mysterious batch of odd questions called The Grab Bag. Let's get to the interview with Josh. So Josh, the, the first thing I want to talk about is that the last time I saw you at ALA, uh, you were signing books for people, and one of the people who was signing or who took one of your signed books realized in like mid-signing that you were their SAT tutor.
1: She, yeah, that was so fun. (laughs) I think she came over knowing that. I think she, because she doesn't like even work in, like she works for a different publisher or something. Mm It was just like, oh, I have to go over and talk to Josh because he was my SAT tutor. Like she saw my name on the thing. and was like, wait a minute, (laughs) which is so nice. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, it's so wild because I haven't tutored in uh, five years, Mm -hmm. like five plus years. And I've been, you know, writing and and performing full time. And so the, the, last crop of people i tutored from the for the sat are finished with college which is that's a little bit overwhelming but what's <laughs> even what that really made me think about was i haven't taught preschool in 8 years and when i used to i taught from full time from 2000 you know fall 2007 through summer 2011 mm-hmm. so the kids that i taught who were like turning 5 in 2008 are now 16, which is like, that is truly mind-blowing. <laughs> like the difference between 17, 18 and 22 is yeah. like, that's significant. Obviously, like they've developed uh mentally and so you know, they've mm-hmm. socially so much, they've gone through so much. That that sounded like weirdly like gross old man to be like they've no, developed yeah, so much. Re- really like, lean into it. Yeah. They've gone through so much. What I mean is <laughs> what you changed so much from age 17 to age twenty-two, but that's nothing compared to the change you go through between <laughs> five and 16. It's like un- you're an unrecognizable person often, Yeah. which is so – that's like – so that when, – when she came up to me and was like, hey, you were my SAT tutor. And I was like, whoa. And uh, I think she went to – I forget where she told me she went, but I was like, oh, good. I did my job.
0: <laughs> it, was, it was a reputable school. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. She wasn't like, you were my SAT tutor. And honestly, I just realized uh, reading wasn't for me. <laughs>
0: Uh, I just want to say that that was, like, my favorite thing that I've ever seen happen. It was so sign-in. sweet. It really made my day. Does that kind of thing happen to you a lot? Are you, like, the, the Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society of <laughs> SAT tutors? Is that, like, your identity? I
1: occasionally will hear from students who I worked – I think I performed at a, at a school one time doing stand-up, and a student came and was like, oh, hey, so good to see you. Like, you tutor – and it's like – so that's – it's really nice. I don't hear from them that often. Um, I think – especially because, like – at the time that I work with them, right. They're kind of like older children Yeah. or the time that I worked with them. So like if I'm working with a a high school junior, who's 16, 17 and we, and all this stuff is usually booked through their parents still, you know, the scheduling of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have that many clients. I'm sure people have clients that they text with directly, but that because I worked through an agency that didn't happen. So it was always, I felt like that's probably kind of a barrier to breach. Um, of, like, going from okay, we work together, you're an adult and I'm a kid, and I, two months later, I get my SAT scores back, and it's like, we, if I was 17, I wouldn't be like, oh, I've got to get this guy's email address and write him a note <laughs> to tell him how I did or where I'm going to school. It just feels like I was probably so far in the rear view by then. Everything, like, happened so much and so fast. Yeah, you know?
0: it's a particularly stressful in time. Yeah, anyways, totally. Like, yeah.
1: But there's, there's like, a couple families that'll still reach out every once in a while, and, and it's very cordial, and I appreciate it. And there's still a few. I tried to have better boundaries as a tutor than I did as a preschool teacher, weirdly, mm-hmm. because as a preschool teacher, it was only the, parents that Our would friends. be in touch. You know what I mean? Yeah. That would be in touch. And so I I think I had a couple of the parents that I was Facebook friends with and still am. But when I was tutoring, I tried to like keep everything very separate because the kids like had their own, you know, they were probably all on Instagram. Yeah. and I was just like, well, I can't be a part of
0: this. No, that makes perfect sense. I would love to not. <laughs> um. So the book is Nice Try. Yes. And I want to know what the impetus for creating the book was.
1: Sure. So I had co written a book of my friend Joe Berkowitz that mm-hmm. was kind of like a humor book, like humor section. Like you see it and you're like, ah, jokes. And <laughs> the, I, I really love essay writing and I really loved the experience of writing a book. And I kind of settled for a little while after that and we settled in and was like, what do I really want to put out in the world? What kind of thing? What's the the overall thematic? Uh, tone and energy of this book that I want to um, create, and so it took me a little while to really feel out. Oh, I want to spend two plus years from con- from uh, conceptualizing it to uh, you know the the whole push into mm-hmm. the world, and this was really the the tone that I wanted to strike and thought would be like. An energizing and exciting place to to write and and talk about and think about. So the idea, you know, it's um, nice try. I think the title there, right? Nice try is like a compliment you give someone when they failed. Yeah. So I think that that's <laughs> like I love that as a like, hey, you did good, but like not that good mm-hmm. <laughs> or um, good effort. Yeah, good effort. <laughs> and it's also like a, about attempts to like be nice and be good. So there's kind of that double like. Um, resonance there I, mm-hmm. I hope for people and that's that's what i that's the kind of thing i really am drawn to is stories about like people who are trying really hard i mean this story these stories were about me <laughs> yeah
0: in in writing about yourself i i wonder was there any particular story that was most difficult to write or or hmm. maybe didn't almost didn't make it in for that reason
1: Ah, oh, interesting. There were a couple that I think were that were more delicate because there are there's the narrative you have for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're like this is the kind of person I am and this is these are experiences that were formative for me. But once you start telling that story to a broader group, I think there are more considerations in play. Yeah. Like you have to nod to other people's experiences a little more and um especially when it's a a book rather than like I do a lot of stand up comedy mm-hmm. and I adore and you get a little more leeway to in your own telling kind of be a dickhead <laughs> As, and especially because this book is not about me being kind of a dickhead it's about yeah. like trying to do good so I think I had to really there, so there are a couple stories that stories that involve other people um people in my life and like um, and sensitivities to groups of people that I, I really um, tried to make evident that i'm I'm being considerate of like this is my experience and I understand that these factors and this kind of privilege informs it mm-hmm. and that I understand that this is not everyone's experience. So like but you can't you can't write everything you can't include that caveat with every paragraph. So kind of delicately. There'd be a
0: lot of footnotes. Yeah. (laughs) There are already a lot of footnotes.
1: I am like a rambling. um, This is your infinite jest. It is. I mean, it is like probably informed by that, Mm -hmm. by infinite jest and like David Foster Wallace's essay collections, like the footnote stuff more than I would like to be true or like to admit. (laughs) But it is. I love a footnote, especially because um, it's, it's like extra place for Jokes that distract from the Prose like the Mm -hmm. the momentum Of a story and the thematic unity of a story So I like just like A paragraph long footnote as like Come here for fun Uh, (laughs) As opposed to like here is An actual citation of something It's just like here's a paragraph that's About um, whatever Ms. Pac Man, which yeah. is, I don't think there is one of those in the book. But oh, like, that's too bad. I know. Yeah. I wish I had. Next but one, yeah. Yeah. That's my next My next week is predominantly about Ms. Pac Man. <laughs> it's <laughs> kind of a, a critical gender analysis of, of Ms. Pac Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, so I, I think that's like a very fun, which is like also very infinite jest, right? There would be, there would be like pages long and notes yeah. that were just, or more or less fun, that were like things that were to disrupt the reading experience mm-hmm. and also be be like this is this brings out the theme in the characters but you it is um it's a little it would be arguably more distracting to just include in the text yeah oh
0: absolutely it would be probably unreadable yeah at that point yeah, yeah totally
1: and and so this is like some of it came from me some of it was like oh this is like a fun thing that i like to put as like a, a cute little aside and then some of it was uh my editor stephanie being like this is unnecessary in the body of the story you can put it in a footnote and me being like i am so grateful for your insight because mm-hmm. this that i would just like go on and on and on and like Endless tangents.
0: That kind of answers what my next question was going to be because I was going to say, you know, nice try is about trying, Augusto, and failing. And yeah. I was going to ask if you failed at all while writing this book. Yeah, <laughs> and that, I, I like that. I, I mean,
1: this it was such a um, privilege to get to work with an editor that who I um, trust and respect so much for for this project because um, I just wanted to like throw everything against the wall. That's like my style. Yeah. Of of writing and and working on a project is I like overwrite. I throw everything against the wall and then I just trust the people I'm working with to be like, that doesn't work. uh and Not all of it, but like, yeah, you know, yeah. Oh, this thing isn't doing it for me either make it better or get rid of it. And I, I think I probably put a lot on her it to, uh, in terms of like, you know, the, the manuscript there's, thousands and thousands of words that just like got axed from within essays like entire several entire essays that got cut for either thematic redundancies or just like they didn't quite get to the place that where they stood up with the rest of the collection Mm -hmm. and like i'm always super glad to hear that and sometimes i'll be like oh but i like this one like what what are your what are your specific qualms with it and then i'm always happy to like go oh yeah you're right you yeah. know, if he, if I cede the, uh, I I withdraw my complaint.
0: So when you re-release this book in ten years, those will all be like the B sides and the hidden yeah, tracks. Yeah, 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 of, yeah, yeah. Of
1: that's gonna yeah. be yeah the the deluxe re-release <laughs> with a bunch of live demos that nobody likes and. <laughs> Two good songs that got cut for some reason tracks
0: that come on your shuffle on your yeah. on your play and you're like oh why do i have this it's loud yeah.
1: and lo-fi perfect <laughs> that's exactly what i want from weezer or whatever <laughs>
0: that's what i was thinking too i was thinking of the the blue, Tanner, album, the blue album there are a couple of really great ones on the, the blue album right? is suzanne ja- jamie the, okay jamie is oh I've, i'm sorry yeah
1: suzanne i i don't is on know the album the,
0: proper maybe i think no. it was just on the Mallrats soundtrack
1: <laughs> they have so many good we yeah. they have so many good soundtrack songs mm-hmm. um there was uh, – there's the one on the Angus soundtrack, which is, like, an incredibly <laughs> specific – I think it's You Gave Your Love to Me Softly or I Just Threw Out the Love of My Dreams, one of yeah. those two. And they're both – I Just Threw Out the Love of My Dreams is, like, an all-time great B-side.
0: I have a lot of 90s bands – like songs from movie soundtracks, like on my. Like oh, yeah. uh, ben Foltz Five did this song, Air, for the Godzilla yeah, soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that one comes up a lot for me. There are some songs <laughs> on the Godzilla soundtrack that <laughs> absolutely
1: are legit. I Everyone I knew had that soundtrack. The yeah. movie was garbage. Yeah. The, um, there were the two big songs, right? Were there was the um, Cuff Daddy and Jimmy Page, yeah. come with me. The Cashmere. The ca- yeah, yeah, it was just Cashmere with some some ditty. And then there was the Green Day Brain Stew remix with, there was just the song Brain Stew, but with Godzilla screaming in the background, <laughs> which is like not, that's like, that's the come with me of <laughs> of uh, Green Day's career. It was just like Godzilla added as much to that song as did he added to Kashmir. To, yeah.
0: You mentioned you're also a stand up that was the kind of your your big break is in stand up. Yeah. And I'm curious uh speaking like to the the book as well. Do you remember like the hardest you've ever bombed on stage?
1: Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: What was that? Yeah, like? yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, there have been several. I, like, did so badly for several nights in a row in Atlantic City that I got fired midweek. And Atlantic City's
0: hard, though. I yeah, mean, I'm not a stand-up, it was but, it, like, I was, being a patron of Atlantic City, I realize we're not in the best, like, mindset.
1: I, I don't think it was ideal for what I do. But the worst—I think the worst I ever bombed—I I think I've told this story some places before, mm-hmm. but I, I love it. I was opening a, an, a, an, a friendly acquaintance of mine from college— was working in an agency, and the agency represented Judy Gold, who's yeah. like incredibly funny, uh, super accomplished stand-up comic. And she, so my 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 friend had said, "Hey, I can get you this gig if you if you're interested. I have to book support for Judy Gold's little theater show. Not little. That sounds like jargon. <laughs> but she was working at a small theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple, yeah. few hundred people, which is like still." very difficult to fill a 300 fill a 300 person theater with the audience that wants to see you mm-hmm. so uh i was already very envious and impressed and so my friend said um uh if if you want i was still living in boston he said like, come drive down to Mamaroneck outside new york city mm-hmm. and uh and open for i think it was it paid like 100 bucks oh nice so i drove down couldn't um didn't you know, didn't have a the money from the gig for a hotel. So I was like, I'll drive. My friend came with me, drive down, drive back after the show. It's about three hours from where yeah. I lived. Um, I, uh I go on stage and I'm, I'm bombing so hard. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like right in my wheelhouse. I was like, it's a theater. People will be paying attention. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, it won't be too dirty. I, I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. So I won't be too dirty. And I'm just, I'm just eating it. And it's not (laughs) totally silent, but I was in like a 250 to 300 person theater, and it felt like there were maybe 25. Very enthusiastic people Ooh, boy. in the whole place. Yeah, and that's what I thought the population of the room was. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe they just haven't got here. Maybe they're missing the opener. Like if you're going to yeah. see a punk band, and yeah. Like, oh, there's six other bands that are going to play for 20 minutes before. <laughs> maybe they were. Maybe they're doing that. Maybe the Jews of Westchester County or whatever <laughs> county we're in we're, were doing that. And so uh, eating it, eating it, eating it for 15 minutes. And um, and I I get off stage. I introduce Judy and. I get off stage and she gets on stage and she looks out into the crowd and goes, Shabbat Shalom, motherfuckers. And it's a Friday night, so it is the Shabbos. And the crowd goes wild. They are so thrilled. Couldn't be happier. Uh, This is the moment they've been waiting for. And Judy destroys for an hour and a half. But I remember thinking when I got off stage, my brain just doing its best to protect me from me when... uh, when I got off stage, I thought maybe the rest of them just got here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's probably what happened. Yeah, yeah. they
1: filed in late. There is a, like a long line. The ticket taking like boop thing just wasn't working. <laughs> so There's was a, a back a backlog of people.
0: Um, if readers take away one thing from Nice Try, yeah, what do you hope that is? Oh. They're not allowed to take away any more. Just one.
1: Um, I the the number one thing I hope is that they feel like. Oh, what a good time that was. Like, I really enjoyed the the time I spent in this book. Um That's, like, truly the number one thing. If I could pick two, which is against the spirit of your question. That's okay. I'll let But it. I am yeah. hijacking it. If there's, like, a – because that's the experience I want people to take away. If there's, like, a thematic message that, mm-hmm. that I want them to leave with, it's just, like, the idea of growing – and doing good for other people is a worthwhile endeavor, even in small and like seemingly insignificant moments.
0: That's really sweet. Thank you. I like that a lot. And that also leads to, I know you, you've you garnered a lot of nicknames in the world of comedy, <laughs> like along the lines of. Who is he? Uh, why is he here? <laughs> the guy before Judy Gold. The guy before um, Judy Gold. The they're always along the lines of like the nicest guy in comedy.
1: It's very sweet. It's like a very how do you lovely, feel about that?
0: It's a very do you love it and hate it. <laughs> I I don't hate it. I yeah. think it's
1: like very. I I feel sometimes there is a pressure to live up to it, mm-hmm. and, and and that's I think part of the book is like the idea of being nice is not always sufficient. So it's not that I ever am offended when people think that I'm nice, but it's yeah. also like I aspire to have more good qualities than that but i think it is nice um it's lovely to have any kind of warm positive reputation at all i think there's like there there was so much of the time i was doing comedy that i had no reputation you know where people (laughs) i was the guy before judy gold that like i'm sure other than my uncle and my aunt and their two best friends who were at that show uh I can't imagine any person who is there has any impression of me. They they haven't thought of me since and so it's nice to have kind of like a calling card that maybe people some people have heard of. It's very like um, flattering.
0: Do you find that being nice all the time which I also like agree having met you a few times Mm -hmm. now is that you are incredibly nice. Is that something that comes 100% naturally to you? Do you have to work on it like where's the where's the dial line
1: I think I was kind of like by constitution and by (laughs) raising uh, you know by by nature and nurture I'm like kind of a polite upbeat get alonger Mm -hmm. but I do think there are moments where I have to like coach myself a little more (laughs) like I um you know, it's always like it's one of those things where I'm very understanding, um, and and like people who work in customer service are people, and their jobs are thankless. Like yeah. it is so rare that that I think that pro- my guess is that people who work in customer service hear like, hey, you know what? This was a difficult situation, and you really like helped me out of this jam, and I appreciate it. It's probably a lot of like. What do you mean I can't get to Detroit? I have to be there. <laughs> but yeah, I so I, I there are moments that I like, I'm not like uniformly like, well, everyone's trying their best. I have to like remind myself like, look, I'm inconvenienced, but it's going to be okay. And this person is doing their best. And th- they've they've just received a line of 30 people who mm-hmm. are furious. And like, no matter how frustrated you are with how bad a job you think they're doing, like this day is as bad for them as it is for you if not worse yeah so so it is there are times where like it takes a little more or you know if i feel like slighted by someone that i'm i'm doing business with (laughs) like a a booker of a comedy club or something or it's it's happened less in the last few years but like i've um i try to be like you know what This person is probably doing their best. Or, like, even if they set out to screw me over, it's, like, writing them a vicious email does not (laughs) solve that. Yeah. It probably makes it worse. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Because now I'm, like, it's not the dispute over, like, hey, my check was light. Or, like, (laughs) why did you reschedule me from the show? It's it's now, like, the fight is, like, I sent you a furious email impugning your general ethics as a human – and uh, and now we have to have we have to deal with that fallout as opposed to like, hey, man, is there a way you could send me the rest of the that fifty dollars? There was a guy when I I'm not going to put his name on blast, but yeah, don't. notoriously when I started in stand up around New England would send people checks that were like five, ten, fifteen dollars light, which is just like so irritating. And I, yeah. I had no self-confidence then as like a. Because I was like, well, if I complain, then I won't get to do these. Well, do that's part working. of the and, idea is to mm-hmm. get
0: people who aren't willing to yeah. complain over 5 to $10. Yeah. yeah.
1: A- and also to take an amount of money that feels petty to complain about yeah. and just like, Siphon that from a bunch of different sources, and then be like, you know, I did I did a show once for seventy five dollars. Like I, I was mm-hmm. opening for a bunch of it was like for Judy Gold for, yeah. G- <laughs> for Judy Gold. I mostly opened for Judy Gold and bombed for the first ten years of my career. Uh, no, no, no. And Judy's wonderful too. Yeah. She and I are, are friends now, and it's but like, you'll
0: never open for her again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've done it since, and it's gone much better. But she so that, so you know, I was doing a show for seventy five bucks. It was not it's not that much money, and like it was promised to me for services rendered. And I got a check for $70 and (laughs) I go, Hey man, uh, I like wrote him an email. I was like, Hey man, uh, I think the check was a little light. I think it was supposed to be 75. I thought we said 70 or maybe it was 60. And it was like, nothing has ever been $60. 60, You know what I mean? Like what is it? A a a PlayStation game? Right. So it's just like a weird level of like, no, it's always $75 or like, fifty or one hundred. It's always like twenty-five dollar increments. I've never had someone try to pay me like, hey, can I pay you eighty-two dollars for this set? It's like this, it's not an hourly wage. It's like pretty there's like a, an industry standard spectrum of It's like $60. Do- what is this?
0: No, you didn't think it was $60. I like the idea of the the terms being like weird numbers you would see from like Jeopardy bits from, yeah, from yeah, that yeah, guy, yeah. James, That's exactly just like, it. Yeah, just like a name, like numbers. Yeah. yeah.
1: I was like, uh, for this gig, you'll be paid a true daily
0: double. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you also recorded the audiobook. I did. Uh, for for Nice Try. Yeah. Uh, how? Where do you rank that in the difficulty scale?
1: It was cool. It was like an interesting <laughs> challenge. I've never done something like that before. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never. How many days did it take you? It took three. We okay. could have done it in two, I think.
0: Um, <laughs> Don't sell yourself short. Yeah. I
1: think we could have. We, by the end of the second day, like, cause we, we booked three, seven hour days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had three, seven hour days and day one, we probably were there for five and a half hours and we knocked out almost half of the book. Oh,
0: nice. Wow. That's yeah, pretty impressive. It's yeah. not
1: bad. And I, I write like I talk. So there were a lot of like stops and starts and, um, and Iris who is, uh, producing was mm-hmm. amazing. And she was such a great like coach and both in terms of like encouraging and like guiding me to do better. Um, uh, but I think writing in a way that like feels natural to how I sound generally, there are sentences that I got to that. I was like, who wrote this? <laughs> uh, like, not not that I didn't recognize, but I was like, this is impossible to say. Why would I think this is a reasonable rhythm? But it's you know mostly for for eyeballs and and, <laughs> and ears rather than like mouths to get their way around. But it was nice. It was like it was it was hard. Yeah, um, to the the vocal strain i'm a talker as you might have noticed so like it was not as bad as i had feared and might be like i didn't blow out my voice talking or anything and like i had a pretty steady tea regimen that that kept me uh at, kept me limber as they say but um the hardest part was like reading things out loud that were written for the page like the footnotes were a real challenge at times and iris was so helpful um and so expert at going like, okay, let's figure out where to put this one. Maybe this one goes at the beginning of the sentence. Maybe it goes to the end of the sentence. Maybe we tuck it in somewhere as yeah. like a, a as like a parenthetical or, you know, clause between em dashes or commas, like say it like that. Um, and then some of them we just punted because there's like there was like <laughs> no way to sneak in like this three word, like witty aside yeah. that sounds reasonable.
0: You have a pug? I right, the pet pug. Yeah, this is the most important question I'm ever going to ask mm-hmm. you. What's more, uh, what weighs more, your pug or your three Emmys combined?
1: Definitely the Emmys, <laughs> no doubt. I could not. It's they're more cumbersome. Yeah, um, definitely the Emmys. Uh, the pug weighs 24 pounds. The Emmys have to weigh more than eight pounds each. Um yeah. they're they're incredibly cumbersome. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, what a what a horrible brag. What a like <laughs> just the worst person that's like. Um, excuse me, uh, take extra care with my 18-carat diamond ring or whatever when I put it through <laughs> yeah. airport security. Just like a real – Did you
0: ever – Do you have to take the Emmys through airport security? Yeah. How was that? Uh, is that one of the times where you could not be nice? It is, <laughs> no. They were like
1: angry. <laughs> They were so gracious. I, I've done it twice, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One time – I'm trying to remember. One time the guy uh, at the TSA guy that was at the – metal detector was like very cool and was like kind of impressed and psyched. It was like, "Whoa, is that real?" And uh I was like, "Yeah." And I was like just trying to grease the wheels. I was like, "Do you want a picture with it?" He was like, "Legally, I can't." And my wife like took a creep shot just cuz it was very funny that the TSA guy was like with the roommate. Um, yeah. And they're usually they've been um more um understanding. This, this people are someone's going to hear this and, and clamp down, but like they've been pretty understanding of like People are flying back from Los Angeles today. They have these awards. Like, let's be a little generous with our, you know, let's, let's, um, let them through the most generous interpretation of the rules. Like maybe they get an extra carry on instead of having to put it in the, um, You know, to to stow this, like, they give you a box that's, like, the size of a parrot coffin. uh, (laughs) So
0: it's really... Don't want to mix those up with your parrot coffins. Yeah, No,
1: I have an extensive parrot coffin collection. You and Jared Leto are similar that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of ways that we're similar. (laughs) Um, I mail gross things to my coworkers just to, like, show them (laughs) that I'm in the game. Just to, like, you know, I'm really committed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a monster. (laughs) I don't know that Jared Leto is a monster, but that certainly seems... It seems like if I were, I'm like, I'm an actor on set, and Jared Leto's like, I'm the Joker. It's like, come on, Jared.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You're Jared. You're in a band. Yeah. Um, So you're going to be the first person we've had on the show to do this new segment. Great. I love it. And this is the Harper Audio Grab Bag. It's, um, you can hear it on here. Yeah. It is the a- The Foley work is incredible. <laughs> yeah. It's a plain old bag mm-hmm. of uh, a bunch of questions in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are from other authors. Some of them are not. Let's have you pull out, like, let's do two. Okay. And see where that takes us. Okay. Ooh.
1: What do you think is the secret to happiness?
0: Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, that's a deep one. Yeah. We, we like really got into it right. I told away. you these questions are going to be stupid, and that one's not. Yeah, that. you were like before we started. You are like these
1: will be, you know, these will guaranteed to be dumb. I think. Yeah. it it's like this one is like oh, the only question. <laughs> this is like the fundamental question of life. Yeah, I think it. I mean, I think that I don't know the secret to happiness, but some things that bring me happiness are like taking pride in the and enjoyment in the work that i'm doing as opposed to like doing things for like specific ends um which obviously like that is kind of a smug thing to say when you have to like make money to live but uh, as i as i <laughs> yeah, also do yeah. but like i think do taking not having aside from that right knowing like i have to do this kind of work to or some kind of work to um house and clothe and feed myself uh but to not especially when you're doing creative work I would yeah. say to to feel like digging in and doing your best is is an end game into its unto itself rather than going okay I did um a lot of work on this and if it doesn't pay off in certain ways I will be very disappointed uh that said everyone buy my book um <laughs> um that that's like one that is a happiness tip and i think Mm -hmm. that that probably holds for other jobs too like i imagine if you're like an electrician um doing a good job at being an electrician is like a saddest like my dad uh was a glazer until he retired which is like glass and aluminum storefronts and i I think he took a lot of pride in like a job well done even when some of the circumstances surrounding that job were like maybe stressful or difficult to negotiate Mm -hmm. And, and um and he's like very proud of the work that he's done, even though it's it's a craft rather than an art.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, I think
1: that I think that it holds when you when you have work that you can feel like ownership in and and pride about yeah, um so that's one, uh, what would your job be if your writing career didn't pan out? Um, I think I would probably still be in education. I'd be like mm-hmm. tutoring and and just doing less um financially rewarding stand up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I love that. Why wow, you got off, like, easy. Should we I try, like. Should we yeah, try to do find one a more. sillier one? Yeah, yeah. Let's see what we got. Um, let's see, yeah, let's see what's in there. Oh, what are you going to eat for dinner tonight? Oh, that's a great one.
1: Yeah, that is great. Um, so, I am probably, I'll probably have something, something light with my wife. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't have to go to a show until late, and I'm working from home later. Oh, nice. Um, oh, you know what, though? We might do this is um maybe we'll maybe we'll go out because i'll be at home already and i won't have to like come home from work and then just like scar something down so maybe we'll go out because um uh if there is the need in uh 35 minutes from now <laughs> the emmy nominations for this year are coming yeah. so if there is something to celebrate which there may or may not be mm-hmm. um uh, then maybe we'll, we'll go out to a little place in the neighborhood oh, that's and have sweet. a cocktail. Yeah.
0: I love that. Yeah. Well, Josh, thank you thank so you, much for having me. Thank you so much for being here what and a treat. this time. This was great. Thank awesome. you. Thank you. Nice Try is on sale September 17th, and Josh Gondelman reads the audiobook, which is available for pre order right now. Thank you again to Josh so much for being a wonderful, wonderful guest. If you are so sold on Josh, and you can't wait until September 17th, well, that's okay, because we're going to give you a fix with this extended clip from the Nice Try audiobook, where Josh has to deal with some struggles at school. Enjoy. A Worthy Adversary
1: My first, and to date only, nemesis was my 10th grade Spanish teacher, Ms. Sandra Walensky. Ms. Walensky was a long-tenured teacher, beloved by many and feared by others. She wore long dresses and always seemed to be leaning slightly forward. When she was in a good mood, her posture gave her the appearance of listening intently. When she was in a bad mood, it gave you the feeling that she was about to spring forward and tackle you off your chair. Ms. Walensky wasn't even the Spanish teacher who gave me the worst grades. Senora Griglin, my freshman and junior year teacher, gave really hard tests, the kind where the grades come back worse than you'd hoped and you still feel like you got off easy. I got along great with her, even when I, a grumpy, entitled nerd, felt like I should have been doing better in her class simply because I always did better in every other class. It was not the circumstances of our meeting that made us nemesis; It was irrefutably personal. In part, it was that the way she taught was not the way I learned. Day after day, our brains rubbed each other the wrong way. We wore each other down like the thighs on a pair of corduroy pants. But more than that, she just didn't like me. And that drove me batshit berserk. How could she not recognize the delightful balance I struck? I was studious but not uptight. Clever but not distracting. High-achieving but not intensely competitive with my classmates. What more did she want from me? If you are looking for a way to spin my psyche out into parking lot donuts of desperation— All you have to do is hint ever so gently that you'd enjoy it more if maybe we didn't spend so much time together. I will, without fail, overcorrect whatever behavior you find unsatisfactory and send my entire personality careening in the opposite direction. Example. Between my sophomore and junior year in college, my girlfriend at the time went back home to California for the summer. Each week, I'd send her an elaborate package featuring a letter, often written in character, and a little gift, If this sounds smothering to you, you're right, it was. My girlfriend once brought up that she found the weekly deliveries a bit much. I spent the next week fretting. I didn't want to disregard her input, but how else could I show I was a devoted long-distance boyfriend? The next week, I slapped a post-it note reading, whatever, onto a brick, crammed the brick into a flat-rate priority mail envelope and mailed it to her. Was that the act of an unhinged maniac? Yes. Was it her favorite thing I mailed her all summer? Also, yes. We broke up the week the fall semester started, obviously, but we're good friends now. Ms. Walensky didn't just hint that I wasn't her favorite student. She practically announced it. She rolled her eyes when I raised my hand to ask questions. She sighed disapprovingly when handing back my homework assignments. She mocked my answers when I participated in class. Nothing I did was good or right or enough. And when I tried the opposite... Laying low in an attempt to skate through our 90-minute class unnoticed, that didn't work either. I wasn't used to being frustrated like this by a teacher. I was supposed to be good at school. Sputtering through Spanish class gave me the same feeling as when you lose track of your online banking password. How can I not crack this code? This was supposed to be a problem for other people, not me. Look, I used to be a teacher. All teachers want their students to learn and grow. But every teacher also has those kids who when they're out sick for a day, inspire a silent prayer of gratitude to God or the universe or whichever student came back from spring break with the flu bug that's going around. For Ms. Walensky, I was that kid. I'm surprised I never walked into the classroom to find her sneezing on my midterm exam before handing it to me or rubbing an uncooked chicken breast on my desk. My psychological breakdown began almost as soon as sophomore year started. I could have handled a bad grade or two. Okay, I could not have handled that but for a teacher to dislike me based on my personality was something I just could not abide. I wasn't always the best student in each of my classes, but I strove to be the most good in all of them. It wasn't that I was a suck-up or a teacher's pet. I mean, I definitely was. I just wanted every teacher to think that I was a bright, shining star destined for greatness. Even if I wasn't setting the curve with my test results, I wanted to make the sharpest, wittiest comments during in-class discussions and seem like the kind of kid who, if he didn't have an assignment complete, must have had a really good reason for it. And also I wanted to get, like, the second best grades. Most of the time my strategy worked. I finished high school fourth in my class, which, please believe me, I have not brought up in at least ten years. My junior year English teacher... Miss Norelli, who taught Faulkner so brilliantly that she tricked me into thinking I liked Faulkner. I didn't. I just liked her. Wrote me a college recommendation so effusive about my potential that I'm slightly ashamed of becoming a medium-successful comedian and writer rather than the first Jewish pope or a newly discovered dwarf planet. Not the astronomer who discovered the dwarf planet, the thing itself. Miss Walensky, however, was neither charmed by my personality nor impressed by my classwork. She had no interest in my clever asides or digressions, and no level of conversational fluidity or grammatical expertise with the Spanish language could convince her that I was a dedicated student. It was worse than getting bad grades. Bad grades reflect poor work. This was about my personality, which I believed at the time to be excellent. Although, almost as upsettingly, my grades in Ms. Walensky's class were also not stellar. From the beginning of the year onward, She gave homework assignments that I found inane, and I struggled to complete them. Tasks like, I want two pages of work front and back on textbook pages 55 through 57. Sometimes the book had practice exercises on the pages she assigned, but she directed us not to focus too much on those. Other times, she would point us to a table of contents, the title page for a new chapter, and a list of ten vocabulary words. What do you want us to do, we asked at first. Whatever you want, just make sure it's two pages, front and back. At first, I did my best to complete her busy work. I wrote practice sentences with unfamiliar vocabulary words. I did the exercises the textbook editors prescribed. I was used to putting in the effort with assignments that I found challenging, except trigonometry, fuck triangles, and fuck their whole crew, fuck cosines, fuck signs, and especially fuck tangents, and coasting through on tasks that were easy. I wasn't accustomed to education as an exercise in volume of work done, but it was my homework, so I did it. Because I wanted to be the most good. Then, gradually, Ms. Walensky stopped checking our assignments, and I lost my goddamn mind. I'd spend two hours staring at the pages of my textbook and free associating to fill the blank pages. I would have liked to show you the turtle. She would have liked to give me the tomato. We would have liked to throw them the chinchillas. It quickly grew repetitive and incoherent, like the verses of a Red Hot Chili Peppers song. And then to show up in class and have the teacher not even validate the effort? Screw that. I wanted to stand up on my chair and display my work to her like Rafiki presenting Simba on Pride Rock. Do you see this? Do you see what a good kid I am? Gaze upon my works and, I don't know, put a little check mark on top of the page. I complained about my situation to anyone who would listen, my parents, my classmates, friends at other schools with no frame of reference. She just doesn't like boys, said my friend Kate with a shrug at play rehearsal in response to my lamentations. Kate was a year ahead of me and was in her second consecutive year of Spanish with Walensky. She was one of the teacher's favorites, a hardworking student with a studious disposition. Her words brought me some comfort. Maybe it wasn't me. Maybe I was being prejudiced against because of my gender. What a relief! And, as a high school boy, I probably deserved some level of skepticism and distrust. Just do the work and you'll be fine, Kate assured me. Still, over time I let my work slip. Once, the only paper I'd had on hand was college-ruled, so it had twice as many lines as the wide-ruled notebook sheets we usually worked with. So, to compensate, I did a page and a half of homework instead of two. It worked out to the same amount of lines, but because it wasn't two full pages, I didn't earn full credit. I became despondent and my effort continued to erode. Some nights I started doing one page front and back and then read ahead in the textbook. Or I wouldn't read ahead. Or I'd just do one side of a page because nothing matters, so why bother? My final breaking point came in our last Spanish class before winter break. Ms. Walensky had prepared a lesson on holiday traditions around the world. Does anyone know how mistletoe was originally used around Christmas? She asked the class. I raised my hand. Well, back in the day, if you didn't like someone, you'd take a little mistletoe and sprinkle it in their eggnog, then boom, I joked, caught up in the holiday spirit. Ms. Walensky stared at me, revolted, the way you might look at a dog cleaning its butt with its tongue. I know you can't help it, but you disgust me, her face said. Why would you say that? She replied. No. Mistletoe was burned as part of a pagan ritual. It's poisonous. I bet you didn't know that, she said. Of course, I had known that. It was the entire premise of my joke. You'd use the poison berries to murder someone with their festive holiday beverage. It wasn't a great joke, but I still stand by the fact that it makes logical sense. When we came back from break, things continued to deteriorate. My every attempt to participate in class was met with withering stares, She responded to any question I asked as if I'd raised my hand and commented, excuse me, I need to go to the bathroom, but I forgot how and where to do that. The attention I paid to my Spanish homework continued to diminish. I had other things to do, and I was learning the material. Why waste my time on something I'd never get credit for anyway? But my teacher's personal distaste for me caused me so much anxiety that I couldn't even enjoy the spite of disregarding her assignments. During one homework check, Walensky was walking up and down the rows, inspecting everyone's work. Not whether it was good, whether it was simply enough. I dug through my backpack, desperate to come up with any notes I could show her. She stopped in front of my desk. I handed her my meager scribbling. Where's the rest of it? She asked, knowing the answer. That's all I've got, I said quietly. Well, that wasn't the assignment. I think I'm having trouble figuring out how to complete the assignments to your specifications, I replied, completely worn down and desperate to figure out how to fix things. Is there any way I could come in after class and talk about how I could do better? She laughed, which felt unfair because I had said some very funny things in her class and that was not one of them. The year is more than halfway over, and now you want help on your homework? Yes? Well, no, she replied. And that was that. I saw Kate at play rehearsal that night. We were chatting backstage, waiting to rehearse a scene, when for once she brought up the topic of Ms. Walensky's Spanish class. Kate seemed to have a new insight, but she was reluctant to share it. So... She began. I think Walensky was making fun of you in my class. She brought up someone wanting homework help this late in the year and started laughing. At that point in my life... I had very little professional experience in any field, but a teacher shit-talking a student to her other classes struck me as profoundly unprofessional. Over the course of the year, my parents had noticed my slow descent into madness, or an español locura. In part, they saw my increasing frustration as I tried to conjure up each night's two pages, which was really four pages, and yes, I will still die on this hill, of verb conjugations and sentence constructions engineered to showcase vocabulary words. The other, larger part of my parents' awareness of my stress was aided by my complaining. During this period, I complained a lot. I mean, also, I complain a lot now. Not in the sense of, I'd like to speak to your manager to lodge a formal complaint. The complaining I like is the good old-fashioned love-of-the-game kvetch, as my ancestors might have called it. It's very satisfying and even soothing when done right, like scratching a mosquito bite. There's an art to it, a delicate balance. You have to go hard enough that the itch gets taken care of, but not so hard that you make the initial problem worse. By the time winter break ended, I'd long passed the point of no return. My spirited trash talk had tipped, irreversibly, into the realm of sincere despair. I shuffled through the house, practically gnashing my teeth and rending my clothes in dread. My mother, very generously, offered to talk to the principal on my behalf, which felt like a big deal. I didn't have what are now known as helicopter parents, the kind who hover at all times, ready to swoop in and lift their children out of a troubling situation like the presence of danger or gluten. My folks were more like the Toyota Camry of parents. They were always steady, dependable, and there for me. But they weren't the high-speed getaway types. Aside from my dad once getting ejected from my youth basketball game for arguing with a referee who told me to shut up, I was probably complaining at the time. They generally advised me on how to deal with difficult authority figures rather than fight such battles for me. So, for my mom to volunteer to handle this one meant that my complaining had gone above and beyond its normal volume and frequency. For months, I demurred. I felt certain that if only I could prove to Ms. Walensky what a good kid I was, our tension would evaporate. After I heard that my Spanish teacher had been making fun of me to her other classes, and Inglés, no less, I took my mother up on her offer. The vice principal agreed to meet with us, and he listened to my concerns. My teacher had a personal vendetta against me, a very good student, a charge that was, as far as I could tell, both concerning and clear-cut. The vice principal, a man in his 50s with graying hair, the very pinnacle of what I'd grown up picturing as a serious authority figure, nodded while my mother and I took turns speaking. When we finished detailing the abuses I'd suffered, Allegations I was certain were sufficient to land my Spanish teacher in the Hague, or at the very least one of those asylums for the criminally eccentric that Batman sends his enemies to. The vice principal offered his response. Ms. Walensky, he told us, was very old. That, of course, was not news to me. But, he continued, on account of her oldness and nearness to retirement and general crankiness, this particular fight was not one he cared to pick with his employee. My options were, as he saw them, to drop out of honors-level Spanish into an intermediate class with another teacher, or suck it up and finish out the year. In short, life's not fair. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Or in this case, Little Havana. I didn't like his decision, but I understood it. As someone who disagreed with Ms. Walensky for 90 minutes two to three times a week, I could say for certain that confronting her was not something I'd do if I could find a way to avoid the experience. There was no way I was going to drop the class. For one thing, that's not what a good kid does. For another, I was determined to propel myself through the end of the year on an engine fueled by spite. She didn't like me? Well, I didn't like her. And, unlike my Spanish teacher, I possessed youth and vigor and a volatility bestowed on me by my out-of-whack adolescent hormones. It's like the adrenaline that flows through a mother's body when lifting a car off a kid, but for slamming a car door and yelling, ''You'll
0: never understand, Dad!''
1: I should stop for a second and note here that with the benefit of almost 20 years of hindsight, I do realize that Ms. Walensky was not a bad person. She was, as the vice principal said, an old woman approaching retirement with years as a successful educator under her belt. She was also very sick, frequently missing days and then weeks at a time of school. Even then, I didn't wish harm on her. But every time I arrived at her classroom to find her desk empty or occupied by an unprepared substitute, I felt an entire snow day's level of relief concentrated into a single class period. The endorphin rush I felt when Ms. Walensky was absent was amplified by the fact that I had basically stopped doing my homework assignments. I still did some homework. I couldn't fully deactivate the good kid part of my brain. But I did just enough to learn the grammar and the vocabulary that we covered in class, and then I stopped. I figured that if I was getting scowls and reprisals for doing 90% of my homework, it couldn't get much worse if I dropped it down to a breezy 25% completion rate. What would Ms. Walensky do, force feed me mistletoe? And if she wasn't in class to check the assignments most days, all the better. It still felt bad that Ms. Walensky didn't like me. But even on the days that she felt well enough to make it to school and thought to inspect her assignments, I realized that there was only so bad it could get. Sure. Her footsteps approaching my desk twisted my guts, the way a bully's fist grabs and scrunches your t-shirt so he can pull you close and let his other fist do some real damage. But once she had marked my work unsatisfactory and moved on to the next student, everything relaxed. I didn't like that she couldn't stand me, but I accepted it as an immutable point of fact. Once I stopped trying to convince her to get on board with the Josh Gondelman experience, having me in her class, not a jam band I was trying to start, my life became easier and happier. I never cut class. I have always been constitutionally incapable of not showing up places I am expected to show up. Even in college, when I had mono, not from anything fun, I made it to every lecture. And I always took notes and participated in group discussions. It was important to me, outside of my willful homework negligence, to get good grades. I didn't want to screw up my GPA in a huff and I did want to prove that I could learn the material without doing hours of inane busy work every night. I think, in the end, I squeaked out an A- for the year, which I took as validation of both my learning style and the endurance I displayed during our educational war of attrition. And the sweetest part of that grade, I knew how much she hated to give it to me. ¶¶
0: Harper Audio Presents is a presentation of HarperCollins Publishers. Our staff includes Beth Ives, Fometa Sawyer, Nathan Rossborough, and me, Andrew Caberline. Follow us on Instagram at HarperAudio and reach out to us on Twitter at HarperAudioPresents.